How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Oh, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. It's great. Good to, that was a really lovely one. You know, Mark, I know you've got these new headphones on, but I swear when I first saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, Mark got a tattoo on his neck. <laughs> you know, COVID changed a lot of things, Dr. Joe. It kind of reset some things and changed the mindset of many, but I have not yet gotten a neck tattoo. Okay. Now, these are awesome though. I love them. And you're also, you're one week away from a big bike ride. Yeah, so these have been great for that, too, because you can actually hear other um, sounds. So when riding, I don't feel unsafe by uh, wearing them and listening to my favorite podcasts, such as the Dr. Joe Show, where you find any fine podcast. But yeah, so the Pan Mass Challenge is next week. I went to an event today, which is why I was running a little tight on two wheels, uh, meeting us tonight at the South Shore Hospital, South Shore Health Systems event. They gave us a jersey and everything, so... I think I'm going to wear this on uh, on day zero. That's great. That's yeah. great. It's you a great thing that. that you do for everybody. It's so appreciated. It raises so much money for such an important cause. South Shore Health is a great program. Great program. They are. They are. They're doing wonderful things. And the thing about it is, is you know, the Pan Mass is primarily Dana Farber Cancer Institute, right? The Jimmy Fund and cancer research and all that. But now that the South Shore Hospital has Dana Farber, we're it's it's yeah duplicative right so now you have the ability to keep it local you have the ability to uh really make an impact locally and it's awesome the pan mass challenge is an amazing thing if you if folks aren't familiar with it get involved they're always looking for volunteers it's such an amazing 48-hour experience and pmc.org is where you would find out how to get involved and, and maybe donate and see if we can reach that 65 million dollar goal i think they're they're shooting for this year Great. For a one forty-eight hour event, sixty-five so million dollars. Wild, important, important effort. Tom, Great. how have you been doing? You know what? I'm doing pretty good today, Doctor Joe. You know that that story about Pan Mass and Dana Farber points out that like we are wired to help each other. Mm. You know, this is a stressful time. It's the easiest thing in the world to be completely hopeless. Mm. We have so many things hitting the fan every day, yeah. uh, but seeing so many people step up to lend a hand to each other it reminds me that we can make a we can make a better tomorrow mm-hmm. yeah that's true there is a remarkable part of us that wants to do things for others um and with that in mind we, we have a guest who is absolutely one of those people and i'm so honored to have her here tom could you please introduce our guest for tonight well dr joe she for over 30 years, has been a thought leader and disruptive innovator in the fields of behavioral health recovery. She founded a company run by and for people in recovery. The mission, to safeguard human dignity by bringing individual voice and choice to the center of the clinical care team. Towards this end, she developed Pat Deegan's recovery approach, 
That includes the award-winning Common Ground software, Medication Empowerment, the online recovery library, the Common Ground Academy for peers and practitioners, and the Hearing Distressing Voices Simulation. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Spoiler alert, Pat Deegan. <laughs> Welcome, Pat Deegan. It's, it's, it's so good to have you here. That's such a remarkable number of things that you've, that you've been creating for people. But when you talk about recovery, let's go right there. Recovery from, from what? From a diagnosis of serious mental illness. That's really what I specialize in, in uh, talking about and writing about. And that interest comes very much from my own experience, having been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a teenager and made my own journey of recovery. It's, it's an important distinction to make because some folks may hear recovery and they may think substance use. So that's why I really wanted to, to clarify. So what was your path? I mean, how old were you when, when you were diagnosed? A senior in high school. Um, and, um, you know, I went to Marshfield High School, and uh, uh, it was the break between uh, Christmas and New Year's, winter break, and I was playing basketball with my team, I love sports, I had, was on multiple varsity teams, um, and I got out on the basketball court during a practice during the break, and uh, found that my sense of depth perception, my experience of where I was in space was getting all kind of whacked. And I uh, began to uh, uh, be very uncoordinated and unable to sync my movements with my other teammates. My coach noticed something was wrong um, and chalked it up to a bad night's sleep. And uh, she told me to go in the locker room and take the rest of the day off, which I did. But things only over the next weeks and months became progressively more difficult. Began to hear very distressing voices. I began to become very concerned, trying to figure out why people around me had uh, flat-headed screwdrivers instead of teeth in their mouth, and what was going on, and what exactly did it all mean, and um, and so uh, things were becoming more and more difficult. And you know, within fairly short order, the adults around me noticed. Uh, it was certainly upsetting to my brothers and sisters if I was barricading myself in a room and hooting and hollering at things other people weren't perceiving. And um, so, uh, you know, eventually I was able to hook up with some, some counseling and some help. Uh, and that sort of helped out for a little while. But, you know, within fairly short order, I was in a psychiatric hospital and received a, a formal diagnosis of schizophrenia. And I think what was, you know, it, it certainly was a, <laughs> you know, I had seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That was about the, the extent of my knowledge of what was, uh, you know, you know, as a teenager, <clears throat> about what it was all about. Um, but uh, it was pretty devastating to, you know, when they said, Miss Deegan, you have a disease called schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a disease that's a lot like diabetes. It's like a person with diabetes is going to have to take insulin for the rest of their lives. This is an exact quote, by the way. You're going to have to take antipsychotic meds for the rest of your life. And my discharge instructions were take your meds, take your meds, and did we mention take your meds, and avoid stress. <clears throat> and uh, that moment was uh, extraordinary for me because I've come to call it a prognosis of doom, that essentially what happened in the sweep of a wand was that a young uh, 
you know, resident in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School told me that my life was for all intents and purposes over. And the truth don't, is- But don't stress, but don't stress. But don't, no, no stress there. Don't <laughs> but stress, don't stress. And of course, nobody tells you that boredom is profoundly stressful, right? That uh, meaninglessness is profoundly stressful. And sitting mm -hmm. in a chair all day, I had picked up cigarette smoking. I used to drink high test Coca-Cola, heavy duty antipsychotic meds and sat there for hours and hours a day and slept about, I don't know, 16 hours a day. And that was my life and that was it. And they kept telling me I was doing well for a quote schizophrenic because I was not a recidivist. I was not going back into the hospital and I had a, a longer period of community tenure. Success, right? <laughs> We've lost the patient. She doesn't have a life anymore, but what the heck, you know? So for me, it was a, a profound, profound experience to go from being a vibrant 17, 18 year old athlete with prospects for going to college to become an athletic coach to within months becoming um, a person who was now, uh, you know, in, living in handicaptivity, uh, truly invalid, invalid, um, with no hope. And um, it, was, it was a dramatic moment. And I wish I could say this was ancient history, but it's not. There are still many, many practitioners out there who are telling people that they will have this disease for the rest of their life and that they will be um, uh, needing to avoid stress for the rest, rest of their lives. And, uh, and so what recovery is about is a whole way of saying, um, I want to live my life, not my diagnosis. That's what recovery is about, is learning to figure out how to live your life, not your diagnosis. And uh, so that's what I do. That's the work that I do. Create tools, technologies, um, and uh, hope for people, their families, and for practitioners working with folks to support them in getting a life. That, that is such a profound, profound reframe of it. So that rather than saying, I'm just going to now live the way you tell me, bored, incapacitated, full of stress, but instead to do something different. And really, it is the ability to manage that stress. And, and that really is one of the most important things, Pat, that I think that you do for others, is to be able to talk about this. We, we have fought, and, and, and just so people know, Pat and I go way back. We've known each other for a long time, but we didn't reconnect until recently and found, I think, that we have so many things in common in terms of saying enough of this stigma, enough of this shaming of people. Let's help people come out of the shadows and realize that they are okay. Pat, one of the things I asked you off air was, you know, do you still feel that you carry the diagnosis of schizophrenia? Yeah. And I think uh, my response to that is um, it's not like they ever graduate you after having been inducted into the schizophrenia society. You know what I'm saying? It's not like they say, well, congratulations, you're now passed on to being normal. Um, you know, it's, it's just like, uh, is, is it real? Well, yeah, it was a functional diagnosis. It was reaffirmed over the course of nine different hospitalizations that I went through over the years. And, uh, you know, some people want to say, well, you must be relieved to know now that you were misdiagnosed. And I felt like saying, well, you should have told me that <laughs> a whole lot of years ago, because uh, 
Uh, and, and all that does is, is, is reaffirm for people the mythology that people diagnosed with a serious mental illness can't get well. And the truth is far from that. There's a tremendous amount of data that shows um, that people with significant um, mental illnesses do in fact recover and live fabulous lives that are indistinguishable from other folks in many respects. So the way I think about it is um, that the goal of recovery is never to become normal. Don't do it. Normal people are running the world, okay? Let's not become normal. Let's become the unique, never-to-be-repeated gift that each and every one of us are. That's the task that's in front of each and every human being, I believe, right? And that's the great quest, you know, the great joy of being alive is that ongoing sense of who am I now? Um, and who shall I become? I mean, it's a beautiful, I mean, I think it was Heidegger who said, you know, to be to be human means to be a question in search of an answer. And I think that that's just so true. I'm always asking, who am I now and who am I becoming? It's a beautiful journey. Earlier, I, I was getting goosebumps listening to you because it is such a powerful message for people. It's so, so important. And, and the idea that you can recover, uh, which, which is not to cover up there's such a different thing yeah. from recovery to recovering up the things that have happened before so how how did you become so inspired to do this i mean you could have done what so many people do which is just turn your face to the wall and say i'm, I'm done i'll take my haldol and nothing else yeah um so, so I think that there was a, very, a number of very distinct, I call them turning points in my own journey. Um, but one of the most significant was that it was after the third hospitalization and I was a ripe old 18 years old by then, admitted yet again to a psychiatric unit and uh, was uh, once again discharged with the same instructions and attending what they call um, med check appointments, 15, 20 minutes in an ambulatory care clinic in, Boston. And, uh, and uh, the psychiatrist was once again lecturing me on the importance of uh, being compliant with my antipsychotic medications. And uh, <clears throat> we were going through the whole drill again. <clears throat> and I remember this uh, extraordinary feeling coming right up from the center of my gut. And um, if you've ever been on high dose Haloperidol to feel anything is something, right? And I feel this feeling like a fire rising up inside of me. And um, I've come to call that feeling um, angry indignation because the words that went with it is you're wrong about me. You're wrong about me. Now, I didn't ever dare to utter that out loud, of course. Um, but inside, it was as if there was an ember left of me. And I call it like an ember of my, of my dignity was left of me. And it came roaring up inside of me. You're wrong about me. And I remember leaving the office and standing outside in a long hallway. Um, and a thought came to me. Honestly, this is what happened. A thought came to me. I'm going to become Dr. Deegan and I'm going to change the mental health system so no one ever gets hurt in it again. I swear it came in just like that. Now. I'm also going to add the caveat that it was not like a band of angels came down from heaven and struck me off my horse. And yeah, that's not how it happened, right? I believe that growth is evolutionary, not necessarily revolutionary for most of us. 
And that was certainly true for me. On the outside, I went right back to my family's living room, smoked cigarettes, high test Coca-Cola, and sat there in a stupor, okay? But something had shifted inside of me. I now had something around which I was going to begin to organize my recovery. You can't organize recovery around nothingness. You can't organize recovery around avoiding stress. We have to know what matters to you more than we need to know what's the matter with you. That's the shift our field needs to make. What matters to you? And now I had a a mission, something I needed to do. I needed to change the mental health system so no one ever got hurt in it again. And I, by the way, C minus student, <laughs> okay, no prospects for like a glitzy education, nothing like this, okay? So what eventually gets me out of that, I call it the Coke and smoke syndrome, you know, the Coca-Cola and the, and the cigarette? My little fourth grade education Irish grandmother every day comes into this smoke-filled trance that I'm in, in this in my parents' living room. And she says, Patricia, would you like to go food shopping? And I say, no. And she would leave. She wouldn't ask me 10 times, 20 times. She wouldn't bug me because I would have shut her right down. She came in once a day, every day, even on a Sunday to ask me to go food shopping. And I should have known because the grocery stores weren't open on Sundays back then, right? Okay, but she, she was faithful. She was hope-filled. Every day she walked into my smoke-filled room. And one day, and I can't tell you why at that point in time, I said, yes, I'll go. And I added the caveat, but I will only push the cart, won't put a damn thing in it because <laughs> I'm stubborn that way too. And so my first active step in recovery after having had this powerful turning point, this sense of mission was pushing a shopping cart down the aisle of an A&P supermarket in Cohasset, Massachusetts, up the road from where I live. And, uh, and that is so profoundly humbling because it really is true that that journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and then another one. And from those very small steps, you know, slowly but surely, a single course at um, Massasoit Community College, English Composition One was hospitalized. One class, English Comp One, was hospitalized again in the middle of it, um, but came back and it took me all summer to finish it. But dang, I finished the course and uh, I was on my way. And uh, it wasn't like a rocket ship taking off a very slow, very, all kinds of things I had to learn how to do manage distressing voices, get the medication down so that I could think and see straight and stop seeing double. And, you know, I don't know. It was a, it was a, an extraordinary thing looking back. And yet I remember it day in and day out. And it really was just do the next thing, do the next thing, do the next thing I need to do, following that, uh, that kind of guiding star that I felt like I had. It was my dream. I didn't dare to, people were always, you know, treatment teams were always saying, I mean, um, yes, but Ms. Deegan, what are your goals? It was, I wasn't going to tell them my goal. That was mine. And if somebody had said, you can't do that, you're a schizo, I think I would have broke right in half. I kept that secret for a long time. Um, and because uh, it was very fragile times. Because and, you were uh, worried that the people would, would dismiss it and say, you can't do that? Many, many people have that attitude that it's called, it's called, um, it's, what do people call it? A, um, it's, a, it's a kind of, as if it's like a setup. If, if you don't, don't reach for the stars because you might fall. 
Yeah. And that's a, people call that. Uh, I've had clinicians tell me when I was young that that was like a false hope to think you could do this or that because of the diagnosis. Don't don't try those things. That's a false hope. So I didn't dare to put anything out there around what my true passion was. So I tell you, as, as a psychiatrist, it breaks my heart to hear that, Pat. But you're, but you are so it is the, the experience I believe of so many people still. So many, and it really doesn't have to be. You know, the the metaphor of this empty shopping cart is just <laughs> so powerful. It's just such an incredible image. And the resilience, because of your grandma, you know, we know that every resilient child has at least one person who's believed in them. Yeah. You know? She was the one. <laughs> yeah. And, and now you give that to so many. You try so many. So what happened next? I mean, there you are. You're, you're taking the course. You, you wind up going back in. You come back out. You, you're, you're, you're on a path, slow as it may be, mm -hmm. but determined as it is. Then what happens? Well, lots of, I continued to work with that same psychiatrist. I feel like we grew up together. He was, as I mentioned, <laughs> a young resident at the time. And I, I think maybe he had 10 years on me, Max. And uh, so he was learning and growing. He was a, a, a pediatric psychiatrist and I was learning and growing. Um, and um, we had some major mega negotiations around medications. You know, I think the key to meds is that um, meds should support recovery, not disable it. <laughs> and, um, and I think that uh, for me, um, uh, he and I worked on um, tapering and lowering dosages, but also then increasing my own ability to, to manage things. And I think another stunning, I mean, the earth moved under my feet experiences was learning that there were things I could do to help myself. Can you imagine? But up to that point, no one had mentioned that to me. Miss Deegan, there are things that you can do that will help you manage distressing voices. And how Peridol isn't the only show in town, right? Or Calixit. <clears throat> so for me, um, uh, the experience was of getting the old, and some of you are old enough to remember the old Sony Walkman, the analog silver beauty with a personalized headset with an AM FM radio built in and your own little headset. <clears throat> and you can make, I could mix my own tapes. And one day I was having trouble with voices and I don't know, just stuck my headphones on it. <clears throat> oh my gosh, guess what? my attitude towards them changed or something shifted because I, I wanted to hear my music, not them, not yeah. what the voices were saying. I wanted to hear Jethro Tull. <laughs> so it was actually Jethro Tull I was listening to yeah. when that happened. And uh, oh my gosh, it was like dawn breaks on my head, the earth moves under my feet. There's something I can do that makes a difference in my experience of this distress. I wonder if it would work if I was listening to a Red Sox game at the same time, right? Would that help? You know, and and it just began to cascade and cascade and cascade. And I would come in and I would share that with my psychiatrist. And I also have a therapist and we would talk about it. Well, let's try that. or Let's try this. They had never heard of such a thing. OK, it's it's such an important message because and I, I want people to hear this. It's not about distraction. It's about choice. And we, we were talking a little bit off air about the the culture in medicine and psychiatry about pathologizing people you know that that people are sick and broken we use the word disorder 
as soon as you use the word disorder, you separate people into two groups, one that you can trust and one, well, you better not because they're disordered. And then Mark, right before we came back, was talking about big pharma. So Mark, you want to pitch that back over to- <laughs> I didn't know we were going we gonna to get into that, that part. I thought that was a, a question. So my question was, what are your thoughts on big pharma as an industry as a whole? Well, there's big pharma, and when I talk to people, um, I, I find the, the the amount of profit that's made by the pharmaceutical companies to be obscene, um, and um, I think it's utterly unnecessary um, when we live in a country like the United States and so many people can't afford their insulin with diabetes. I mean, come on. Um, and so I think uh, I was reading the other day uh, in 2020, a pharma in the U.S. spent $7 billion on direct-to-consumer advertising. So you're flipping through your TikTok feed and up comes your little ad for, uh, you know, Abilify or whatever it might be. I really struggle uh, with that. I, I, I and, uh, and I think our professions have tried to backpedal a bit and unentangle itself from the tentacles of pharma, but it's a very slippery slope, boy. And, uh, and so it's very murky uh, in the weeds. And I think that uh, people are under a kind of trance about psychiatric medications, as if there's a pill for every ill, and I just don't buy it for a minute. And that's part of why in my work, I talk with people and have created an entire worldwide community of certified coaches in what I call personal medicine, the things I do to be well, not what I take. And what many of us find is that the balance or, or, or the, the pathway into the, the life we want into our recovery means perhaps finding the right balance between any psychiatric med I might use and um, what I do to get well and to be well. And, you know, a simple example would be something like exercise. We know through just so many different randomized controlled trials that um, exercise is a very powerful um, antidepressant with a very large effect size, but you will not find exercise on uh, the list of uh, guidelines for the treatment of depression in the United States of America. Why? That's a that's a that's a very critical question. So I'm out there disrupting uh, uh, the pharmaceuticals message by saying medicine can be and is what we do, and it's not just a metaphor. It changes. Love can change our biochemistry. Laughter can change our biochemistry. Exercise changes our biochemistry. Joy changes our biochemistry. That's what you It's true. <laughs> and, and, you know, with, with the IM, the biological domain is just one of four domains. It's, it's not all of them. And what I explain to patients is when I'm adding a medicine, all I'm doing is making a small change in the biological domain. Nothing's broken. You change the environment of the cells, you change the response. But you have the home domain, the social domain, and especially the way you see yourself. And if you continue to see yourself as broken, well, that may be your I am, but you can change that because you're not broken. At what point Pat, did, was that epiphany for you? Was that, was that that 18-year-old when that anger part came up and you said, no, I'm not broken? Or was there... A progression to that. Well, I think it's an evolution. You know, I think that it that, that the that the depth of that idea, I'm not broken and I'm not in need of fixing, is a very uh, deep idea, particularly for those of us who were diagnosed when we were young, and it becomes so much a part of 
you know, our evolving adolescent identity, right? Uh, to have this mega label put on you. So I, I, I do think that, um, you know, I'm not broken, I'm not in need of fixing, beginning to trust the healer within me, beginning to trust that um, I am resilient, that I have a natural inborn self-writing capacity, that I can listen to sometimes myself and not always to what the professionals are telling me to do. These are very, very powerful revelations. Um, um, and that to, to know that within me, I carry some of the keys to my very own wellness and I can unlock that for myself is very empowering. And it's really also really filled with hope. Right. Um, and so what I love to see are entire communities springing up around this idea of personal medicine um, and it becoming, um, you know, something to celebrate as people share what, you know, share their personal medicine for dealing with this challenge or that challenge. Um, and really just celebrating that. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, I'm a person, not an illness. Imagine that. I, I... <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm not an invalid invalid, as you say. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to that moment where you, you recognize that you could manage those voices by choosing to listen to music mm -hmm. or choosing to listen to a Red Sox game. What, what, what other strategies did you develop and, and that you've now been teaching people? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that first of all, I want I want to say that there's actually a, an entire international community of voice hearers who come forth from uh, it's called the Hearing Voices Network. We have chapters all over the United States. Everybody's meeting virtually now, and people are recognizing that hearing voices is a common human experience. With about four percent of the population having had the experience, and not all of it diagnosed. So you see this power of people's um, reclaiming and owning with some pride kind of the experience and making the distinction between uh, hearing distressing voices and hearing other sorts of voices, which actually can be actually helpful. <clears throat> and it's not uncommon. <clears throat> um, now, so we're talking about the domain of distressing voices when I talk about using the Walkman. And <clears throat> of course, today I have an iPhone, <laughs> so I'm not using the Walkman anymore. But anyway, <laughs> the stream my my tunes. But um, yeah, I think I think that uh, um, all kinds of strategies. For instance, um, putting an earplug in one ear um, helps many people. And for some reason, it doesn't work as good if you put them in both ears. I've actually read that somebody tried some research on that, but it was still unclear. <clears throat> I think uh, other. Uh, an idea I have is, and I use this, right? I keep it right on my desk, actually. This is a personal medicine card, okay? And it's uh, this, this, this personal medicine is called Show Compassion for My Voices. <clears throat> mm. It can be helpful to think of our voices as an early warning system trying to protect us from harm. Mm. Seen from this perspective, voices may be trying to help us. Using our compassion itself, we can thank them for the warning and tell them we'll stay safe as we go about our day. <clears throat> and then on the back, you always personalize personal medicine. They're not generic coping strategies. So if voices say, keep your eyes down, I could be working on reminding myself, I'll definitely be careful. I could say that to my voices in a compassionate way. I'll be careful. They are laughing at you. Thanks. I'll put earbuds in. You're radioactive. I'm on it. You can rest now. 
that more competitive, in other words, a lot of people, myself included, instinctively go to kind of anger, shut up, go away, stop, stop, stop. <clears throat> For many of us, that seems to inflame the situation rather than help. Um, showing compassion towards distressing voices can actually be really helpful. And then, of course, there are the experiences of hearing voices that are rather profound and helpful. A lot of people think that psychosis or altered states, as sometimes we refer to them, are just about psychopathology or unwellness. Um, but many of us have had experiences when in those states of deep healing. One time I was on an inpatient unit and I was hearing very distressing voices. And I'm sure the notes in my chart that day said I was ambulating, probably, I don't know for sure, but probably said I was ambulating uh, aimlessly and in an agitated state, you know, you know, the jargon. Yeah. Uh, and I remember standing up against the wall in this single corridor in this inpatient unit. And it, it, it was such a, an emotional storm and it was just a very hard time. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this very, very, very different voice. And the voice says to me, you're the flyer of the kite. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> And it just kept saying it, you're the flyer of the kite, you're the flyer of the kite. And I just became entranced by that message. And I just, it was like almost like a, a mantra that I would start thinking about. And then I became I, a very visual person. I'm a very visual person. And I imagined myself inside myself being the flyer of the kite. And up here was this huge emotional, crazy, ah, going on. And yet where I really was, was down here holding the kite. And if I could identify with the flyer of the kite and not identify with being the kite, there was a steady unmoved mover within me. Can you believe that? I mean, that came through. It didn't all come at once in some giant aha. It became like this thing that captured me. And I, I continued to mine the deepest meaning of, of that message that came through on that particular day. So how beautiful is that? And we don't hear about that aspect. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's not uncommon, let me put it that way. And I'm not trying to aggrandize what we call um, these altered states or psychosis. And I'm not saying go on out and try it, it's great, because it's not, <laughs> it's really hard. But at the same time, um, it is a human experience. And like any experience, we can learn from it. It's a it's a powerful metaphor again that, that you are the flyer of the kite. You are not the kite. It's just a great image. So many people get so afraid of these voices, um, and you're right. They, I, I've heard this. You know, people get rageful at them, and and then the voices just increase. But what you did, the compassion, sort of translates to respect. You know, you're respecting them, you're valuing them, and they just calm. Off air, we were talking about uh, some of the simulations. Could you talk a little bit about, about that that you created back in the 90s? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> I, way back when, uh, I decided that <clears throat> I needed to build tools that would give people the experience of psychosis so that they could see how would I personally move through that a world where I was hearing distressing voices, right? And so <clears throat> I had a little four-track tape machine to build a prototype with. 
And I won't go into the, all the details, but it was a lot of fun uh, working out a script and, and putting together a, a simulation of what it's like to hear distressing voices. Then I went into well, a studio. and On and, that beta test, what were those voices? What were you, what were you projecting? Well, well I, I, I created voices that were realistic and that were distressing. Um, but I also made sure to sprinkle in voices that were kinder and that were um, uh, soothing. I also made sure to sprinkle in um, periods of silence. The simulation itself runs about 45 minutes. It's still in use. I've recreated it a number of times now with more sophisticated technology over the years, but back in 96. And my whole thing was, I will not build um, a voyeuristic experience where people can pop it on and like trip out to Pink Floyd, you know? Oh, yeah. wow. And then no wonder they go crazy. This is really scary. <clears throat> I wouldn't do it. So what I did is with the simulation, yeah, you're going to hear voices and carry the Walkman around with you, but you're also going to go to a mock emergency room and have a mental status exam. We're going to do a mock day treatment program, or you're going to have to do some dumb puzzles. We're going to have a psychological testing center, and you're going to have to take a reading comprehension test. And then I'm going to send you out into the uh, community for a meaningful daytime activity, which is what we do to people in treatment all the time, right? I want you to go out here, your doll, Bill, and you've got to go ask the guy down the road here if you want 10 dimes for a buck, <laughs> right? And people are hearing voices, right? And oh my gosh, you would not believe what happens. There's a three-hour training, right? And like I said, it's done by the U.S. Marshals. It's done by the FBI, the, the tribal police of Barrow, <laughs> Alaska are using it. It's really amazing because what happens is people get mad at my actors who play the uh, <clears throat> role of the staff and they're saying, why aren't you talking to me about my voices? You're yeah. doing this stupid test with me and all. You're asking me who are the last four presidents of the United States and I'm having this trouble. Can't we talk? I said, well, that's what you, you guys do. To, that's what happens. Standard procedure in the mental health system. Um, and so it's a people come out and then they get an hour to debrief from, from the experience. Wow. And all of a sudden it's like, because they've experienced it, it's gone um, from the head to the heart. And you hear full, you know, seasoned clinicians saying, I didn't understand that it's not helpful um, to not talk about, there's a mythology, a clinical mythology. Don't talk to the patient about their voices. It only reinforces voice hearing. What it does is create isolation <laughs> and loneliness. That's what it does. So. What, what it does, is, what it does, is say, "Don't talk about these things." Yeah. You know, you keep that secret. You keep that to yourself. Uh, yeah. I, I could not agree more, Pat. And it, it, how do we? How do we get our system to change faster? Because you know, there's this slow process, but we don't have the time anymore to wait around with this. How do we get it to move? Well. I have a friend who's a monk up in the wilds of Nova Scotia, and he taught me a good lesson when he said, you know, um, he, he's had it with change. He said, um, with all our busyness and change agendas, it's like we keep rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, and all we really achieve is a better view while going down. And so I've become extremely interested in progress and much less interested in change. Because um, we spend um, billions and billions of dollars in the United States, trillions of dollars in the United States healthcare system. And uh, 
sometimes I think less might be more, more community-based um, mm. care. Um, and uh, there are so many upstream social determinants of um, health um, and disparities in health and health opportunities for wellness. The inequities run deep, very much along uh, class, socioeconomic class, um, and uh, the color of your skin in our country. And it's it's a tragedy. These are these are issues that no amount of um, psychiatric medicine are going to fix, right? Uh, you know, if if you're a if you're a black person in America, uh, particularly a black male, you're seven times more likely to be diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia than are white people. It's just a fact, and it's been a fact for many decades. Um, these are the kinds of bigger picture things that we need to to be looking at in order to really begin to think about not change, but how do we make progress? How do we start turning the ship around? Because it needs it needs support. I think the recovery movement here in the United States, and it's all it's all over the world of people um, like myself who have this so-called lived experience of their own recovery, um, being being not a, being willing to share their experience, becoming certified peer specialists, working side by side with others, making the journey. That's very hope filled in my mind, right? And I'm not anti-medication and maybe some new and better meds that don't cause a 60, 70, 80 pound weight gain in diabetes. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> right. Uh, but also, this is the stuff I can't get my head around. We have over 28 randomized controlled trials around the world that shows that if a person with a serious mental illness and perhaps even co-occurring substance abuse disorder says, I want a job, I want to work, and we work with them to place them in a job that interests them, okay, guess what? They start getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Do we find, do we have supported education and supported employment programs available to every American? No. So we keep saying we need more data. We've got the data. We know, we know what works. We just lack the will to make those opportunities available, those services available to people. And that's that's where principled leadership comes in, right? We've got to stand up and say, this is what we must have. I agree. And I, 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 your, your example is one of my phrases, contribute to humanity to help preserve your sanity. I mean, <laughs> when you give something to someone else, you increase your value. And that, I believe, is truly one of the core abilities that we have for each other. We can remind each other of our value at every moment. Just like your grandmother was coming in saying, Pat, dude, come shopping, come shopping. That was an expression from my sort of translation of it. Saying, you're valuable, Pat. You're valuable. Come with me. Be part of my group. That's what we need to do with people. We've, we've spent so much time separating out and dividing but we can do something different. It's part of our humanity yeah. to be compassionate, to share, to care, to do for others. And Pat, that, I mean, I, that's why your work is just so refreshing, rewarding, wonderful, because you do so much for others. With, with that in mind, you know, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end of the show tonight, but we talk about the I am approach, the idea that we're doing the best we can. And 
influenced by four domains, our home domain, you've spoken about that with your grandmother, the social domain, which is unfortunately going into psych hospitals, but also all the stuff that you're doing for our general community, the biological domain of your brain and body, the IC domain, how do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Because these four domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So Pat, what small change can you recommend to our listeners, given what we're talking about tonight? Um, well, when I reflect on small changes, I like to think about the um, where we are right now. It's, it's uh, the middle of summer. And although it's bright and light out, um, the days are incrementally, slowly, evolutionarily getting a minute, a minute, a minute shorter, so that by November, things will seem very different. And if you look at any one day, you can't really see it coming. But in November, we'll all know winter is coming. And I sound like Jon Snow. Um, anyway, uh, we... Um, uh, I find enormous hope in this idea of evolutionary small incremental steps that we can take to change. That sometimes I think when many people think of change, they think of it as revolution. Um, you know, uh, and sometimes change can be that. But more often than not, I think that the, the way of life is evolutionary uh, change. And so even small things, like in the next room, um, I have my gym shorts and my t-shirt and my and I'm a, I'm a since since the pandemic I'm I've taken up rowing yeah. and I've got my hydro rower and I've got a 30 minute row plan for tomorrow morning I will stumble out of bed at 5 a.m stumble into the bathroom and there's my stuff and it's That's only great. two more stumbles to get on and I'm you've got like 15 30 seconds you control no one you influence everyone you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be Dr. Patricia Deegan, a few seconds. What kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be a positive influence and bring hope to people who may be feeling like there's not too much. And you are. Thank you so much right. for being here tonight. Folks, gratitude. Have a great week. We'll see you back here on the Dr. Joe Show next week. Thanks, Larry. Good night, Tom. Good night, Mark.